it is my great pleasure to present Rabbi Irving Greenberg. Thank Rabbi for that very warm and kind introduction. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> and uh, my wife and I are very happy to be here with you for the next few days, I guess, not just for tonight. Um, in particular, because we are building or weaving the fabric of Jewish life anew in this country now, <laughs> it's the key to the future. And tonight I get the opportunity or the privilege <clears throat> to talk about a broader philosophy, if I could, or a vision, the Jewish vision that I think has changed the world or transformed the world. If we look back at human history, I, would, I think we can make an honest case that this people, the Jewish people, has had more impact on human history than any other people. Of course, when I say this, usually people say, well, what about the Chinese? <clears throat> you know who also had a tremendous influence and, of course, one of the oldest cultures. I say, okay, but there are a billion Chinese, so I'll revise my comment. Pound for pound, we've had more influence <laughs> on world history than any other people. <clears throat> and not just because of the Bible, which is the most widely read book in all, of all time, and not just Judaism, which is the religion of, what, 12, 14 million people. Our vision created, gave birth to, Christianity, which is the religion of almost two billion people. It profoundly shaped Islam, even if the Islamists don't want to admit it, uh, which would not exist but for the Jewish influence. And of course, Western culture, modern culture, the most dynamic culture of human history, is generally credit, at least we get 50% credit, you know, Greece and Athens and Jerusalem, somehow the Greek and the Jewish influence have shaped modern culture. The question is, what in our teaching, what in our vision, has been so transformative? And that's what I wanted to explore with you. Because I think one can argue that the Jewish people tells three stories. If you want to be a, a Jew, you have to know these three stories in a way, live them. I believe all people live out, see their lives as part of a larger story. I believe we tell three stories that have profoundly affected human understanding of life and of how to live life, except that my personal contribution, or I'm trying to make that contribution, is to say that these three stories in turn add up to one larger story, which as you can tell from tonight's title, I call the triumph of life. The three stories are creation, I'm now using some of the official language of our tradition. Creation, the third story, creation is the first story, I'll come back to that in a moment. Redemption, Geula in Hebrew, which is our third story. And for many years I thought it was that movement from creation to redemption, it's our great contribution. In the last hundred years, if you study the last hundred years of Jewish history, or human history, I've come to realize that no less a contribution is the middle story. How do you get from creation to redemption? And there the answer is covenant, partnership. Those three stories, from creation to redemption through covenant, through a partnership of humanity and the divine, are the story I'd like to tell tonight. Believing, one, that it does 
add up to a story of the triumph of life, believing that not only has it transformed human history, but that it has a key to how to live one's personal life in a very special way. So let me start at the beginning, literally, with creation. When I say we tell a story, by the way, I mean it. If you look through the Jewish tradition, we tell the story of creation in our scriptures. The Torah opens not with the story of the first Jew, Abraham, certainly not with the story of the beginning of our people, which is in the Exodus. It starts with the beginning of creation. And it tells that story of creation repeatedly. Throughout the Tanakh, throughout the Bible, the story is told again and again. Do it again until we get it right. The Torah is told through our holidays. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur is the story of the creation of the world. Through Shabbat, which is Zechel Lemasa Breshit, remembrance of creation. It's told in the mitzvot, in the commandments. It's a theme. I mean, these Jews are nudges. They don't know when to stop. They tell you the story over and over and over again because they want to make sure you understand it. And what is the story of creation? Again, I don't want the speech to be as long as creation, so let me try to give the, the heart of it. The story of creation says, and here's the first impact on the world history. This world that we're living in is not an accidental world. It is not the product of a blind physical process, mechanical process, which has spun off worlds of physical existence that come from nowhere, are going nowhere, will disappear into oblivion. We claim that this world is a creation, not only in the sense that it has order and purpose, it has a creator, it has a unity of creation. Despite the incredible variety of life and of existence, it has a unified, ordered pattern. And that pattern, if you study carefully, at least as presented in our tradition, has three fundamental movements, rhythms, patterns, I like to call it laws, laws of life. The creation is moving first from chaos to order. If I would speak the language of science, I would say from the Big Bang, which is so chaotic and so violent that nothing can exist in that first hyper minute, less than a second, and which evolves through billions of years of radiation when no matter existed, to matter, to clumping of matter into galaxies and from galaxies into stars and from stars into star planet systems. It's a movement from chaos to order. If I'm using the biblical language, of course, I'm using the language of from tohu vavohu, from utter chaos, to Shabbat, to a kind of a perfect order and harmony which the Torah describes on that seventh day of creation. Now again, what I've just said is very counterintuitive. If you live like my life, you know, you wake up in the morning, your desk is very orderly and neat, and by four o'clock in the afternoon, it's total chaos. Most of us think of life as moving, you know, from when I just got through cleaning up this house and making ice till my kids make a wreck of it. So we mentally think of the world as moving from order to chaos. But that's the point. The tradition tries to get us to step out of our own skin and see the world from a divine perspective, from the divine infinite perspective, from the cosmic age of the earth. You see, it's a counter movement. It's a movement from total chaos to order, not the order of absolute fixity, not the order of nothing changes. That's the order of death. It's dynamic order, which includes elements of chaos, by the way. 
as I said, but it's a dynamic order that sustains life, and that brings me to the second great rhythm of creation. Creation is moving from non-life to life. And here again, it's counterintuitive. Most of us think of it. I mean, the whole life insurance industry is based on the theory that we're moving from life to death. Most of us think of we're born, and from the moment we're born, we start to die. Judaism says, again, that's because you're trapped inside the body of a typical human creature that lives 70, 80, 90 years. And that's a very biasing kind of experience. But if you could step out of your own skin, which you can't, of course, perfectly, if you could see the world from the divine perspective, what would you see? For billions of years, there was no life in this world. Of the estimated 13 to 15 billion year, age, years age of the Earth, in the first 13, 14 billion, as best we know, there was no life. And then, single-celled life. And then, since that time, life has grown, multiplied, I mean, variegated in all directions. There are now 10 million species and counting. It's believed that we've discovered just the tip of life and of creation. So that actually, if you look from a divine perspective, the world is moving from non-life to life with incredible, there's, I'll give one other example. Every human being ever born thus far has died. And yet, as I speak to you, there are six billion plus people. There are more people alive today than ever before in human history. So if you can get out of your own skin and see that, you'll realize the world is moving toward life. And despite vast wipeouts along the way, as far as we know, there may be more species alive today than ever before. So the third great rhythm of life, of, of the world, is not just that it's moving from non-life to life, but life has developed more than quantitatively, it's developed qualitatively. And again, one can describe that movement. I'll describe it in biblical language in a second. Life is becoming more complex, more capacity. And how do I exemplify that? Well, think of that first amoeba or that first one-celled animal and humans. Incredible growth in capacity of life. In the Bible's language, well, before we get to the Bible, it's what is, how would you say the difference between me and an amoeba? Well, among other things, amoebas are better looking, but aside from what, the, it, it's, it's a growth in consciousness, understanding, tremendous growth in understanding, complexity of understanding, tremendous growth in power, our ability. We're not the f physically the strongest animal in the world, but we can deploy incredible power because we've developed our mind and developed engines and structures of all sorts of unleashed power. Tremendous growth in capacity for relationship. Tremendous growth in capacity for relationship. Again, if you look back at the first, reproduction is asexual. If you look at the growth of life, again, animals develop the capacity for, for relationship, but it's overwhelmingly dominated by chemistry. Humans are that form of life that has developed tremendous capacity for lifetime relationship. People have lifetime relationships. In fact, a tremendous growth in freedom because most animals are overwhelmingly dominated by their chemistry. When it comes to sex or reproduction, take the average deer. In the springtime, the buck gets a shot of 
testosterone. And at that point, any doe is a deer. And so they just go out and they have sex. That's the, it's totally dominated by, by chemistry. The human being is that form of life that develops relationship and freedom. So, you know, you can go out there and meet this gorgeous hunk of a male, look at him, and then he opens his mouth and he totally turns you off. Or a beautiful woman, and I would care, wouldn't care to go near her because, again, the relationship, the choice, is much more powerful than the sheer chemistry of the physical attraction. The Bible says this is life developing and growing, becoming more and more like God, so that in the form of the human, the most developed form of life so far, we have life in the image of God. Life that is literally God-like. To use the language of the eighth song, the human being is given power, glory, capacity, just a little bit less than God or an angel, God-like. So what am I describing? The three great laws of life of creation, if you understand this world, that you're not living in a blind and mechanical and meaningless process. You're living in a world which is developing in a direction. It's moving toward order toward life, toward quality of life, toward capacity of life. At every step of that growth of life, the tradition suggests life has more dignity, more value, as well as more capacity. And what is my task as a human being, says the Jewish tradition, to join in, as it were, in the story of creation. Creation is not finished. It's moving toward life, still has a tremendous, ubiquitous power of death. It's moving toward the quality of life, but that's not finished. Human beings themselves are a development compared to the previous forms of life, but even humans have the capacity to grow or not grow. So we have the personal choice. We can live our life on the side of order or on the side of chaos. We can live our life on the side of life or bluntly on the side of death. I'll come back to that. And as human beings, we're called upon by the tradition to live on the side of life, to join in not just as individuals living our life, but join in the entire civilization in the choice of moving the world toward life as against toward death, toward the dignity of life as against the degradation of life. And the world is unfinished. And here I come to the... So that's the basic story of creation and how you're supposed to live in harmony with creation. And I will come back to that. I'll move on a moment. But that choice of living the laws of life and of directing them is, in fact, what the Torah is all about. In the words of the Ahava Rabbah, God loved us with great love and... In the prayer we say, Avinu Malkinu, our, our, our father, our ruler, for the sake of this love and for the sake of our ancestors, whom you loved, vatlamdeim chukei chayim, and you taught them the laws of life. If you understand Judaism, it teaches you all the details, all the mitzvot, all these ritual, all the ethical commandments, boil down to these three movements. That in every act, in every choice of life, we choose to be on the side of order, which sustains life as against chaos, on the side of life as against neutral or death, and on the side of quality of life, choosing to develop our mind rather than dumb down, 
choosing to play ball rather than sit like couch potatoes, <laughs> choosing to watch PBS instead of MTV. No, I'm just kidding. Well, you, you, know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. That is the story of creation and the role we're supposed to play in it. But the climax of this development of creation, the climax of the movement toward life, toward quality of life, comes in the form of human beings, who are the climax of creation thus far, according to Jewish tradition. Why do I call it the climax? Because you're dealing with a form of life that is literally godlike and has the capacity of godlike, which has further consequences. I want to talk about two of them in particular, Jewish tradition. Number one is all of life has dignity because life is special. Life has these remarkable qualities because God loves life, because life is sustained by God. Our vision of God is the God of life. Melech chafetz b'chayim, we say in the high holiday ritual. This is the ruler who not only chooses life, but who chafetz, who desires life, who lusts for life. So to be on the side of life is to be on the side of God. But more critical, as life becomes more dignified, we reach the image of God, which is the most dignified form of life in the world. So if I've got you the story of creation, the laws of life, I consider the next teaching the most important teaching I've ever given, so please pay attention. You can then tune out the rest of the time. What does it mean to say human beings in the image of God? The Talmud gives us a definition. All human beings are created in the image of God. In the Genesis, again, at the climax of the creation story, we're told God created human being in God's image. In the image of God, God created them, man and woman. God created them. So the Talmud asks, what does it mean to say we're in the infinite, we're in the image of God? And it comes up with three fundamental dignities. The way I like to fantasize it, in the Jewish, in the American tradition, we have this classic passage of the inherent dignity of the human being. You, you all know it by heart, I'm sure. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain able rights, among which are See, you know, my fantasy is you'll know the next three after I get through tonight. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Well, the Jewish equivalent to that is we hold these truths to be self-evident that all humans are created in the image of God, and they are endowed by their creator with certain able dignities, among which are, okay, well, this is my fantasy. Someday you'll, you'll be able to know it just as well. They really got as well trained in this country. The three dignities, one, this is the Talmud, if you're a human being in the image of God, it means that you have infinite value. If you save one life, very famous line, thanks to Steven Spielberg and Schindler's List, if you save one life, it's like saving a whole world. Well, why is saving one life like saving a whole world? The answer is because it's infinitely valuable. And how much is one times infinity? Infinity. And how much is six billion times infinity? Also infinite. Now, what does it mean to say infinite value? Here again, you have to understand, this is not just a nice metaphor. One example would be, what's your life really worth? And how is it treated? Is it treated as something of worth? Uh, let me give a simple example from an image of man. An image of man rather than an image of God. As you may know, sometime in the last two years, a painting was sold for what is believed to be the most expensive, at least public sale, of a work of art of history. 
A Jackson Pollock was sold by David Geffen, right, a neighbor of yours, to a hedge fund manager at the time, money was no object. He sold a Jackson Pollock for $140 million. A year earlier, a Picasso was sold for $115 million. And about six months before the Pollock sale, Ronald Lauder bought a Klimt painting of Adele Bloch for $135 million. Well, if a Picasso, if a Klimt is worth $135 million, if a Pollock is worth $140 million, if a Picasso is worth $115 million, how much is a painting by God worth? The Jewish answer is infinitely more. Every human being is created in the image of God. Then that means that they are more valuable, more precious than a Van Gogh, which sold for $82.5 million some 20 years ago. Now again, you may say, well, what's the implication of that? Very concrete. We don't know what they did with the Pollock, because it's a private matter. But the, when the Van Gogh was sold, it became a public record, it was bought by a Japanese insurance company. Guess what they did when they bought an $82.5 million Van Gogh? They built a special room to display it. And you know what was about this room? The room was climate controlled. It shouldn't be too wet, because if it gets wet, it can spoil the paint. It shouldn't be too dry, because the canvas will crack. It shouldn't be too hot, it shouldn't be too cold. It had to be just perfect, after all, it cost $82.5 million. Now, of course, you understand what I'm getting at when you think for a moment about any image you have, say, of a homeless person in Los Angeles or New York City. When in the wintertime, they're freezing, and a car drives by and splashes them with mud and slush. It's the opposite of an image of God. If you were really treated as an image of God, they'd give you, every human being, a home that was not too hot and not too cold, because this is the most precious thing you can imagine. Or I give you another example. What's your life worth? Well, would the government spend a million dollars or $150,000 to assure your health? Would it pay for an insurance company, so, uh, for medical insurance, so you wouldn't have to worry that you couldn't afford medical coverage? Or how about, as I speak to you now in the third world, millions of children die every year in Africa from malaria. And what do we know about it? We can make anti-mosquito netting impregnated with DDT that for five years cost $8 for five years, can protect a child or children from malaria by keeping out the, the mosquitoes. If it cost $8 for five years, that comes out to $1.65 a year, that comes out to less than half a penny a night. But in Africa, millions of children die every year because the government hasn't bought, because the world hasn't raised the money to provide malaria mosquito netting. So this world we live in is an outrageous departure from the principle of infinite value, but that's what the Jewish tradition teaches every human being should be treated like. Which brings me to the second fundamental dignity of image of God. There is no preferred image of God. They're all equal. So God is portrayed in the Bible as a young warrior. God is portrayed in the Bible in the book of Daniel as a as an old man with a long white beard sitting on a throne. God is per 
is portrayed in Isaiah as a mother, in the words of Isaiah, as a child whose mother comforts him, so will I comfort you, the Jewish people. Those are legitimate images of God. As long as you don't say, you know, no, God is really an old man with a beard sitting on the throne, that's Zeus. No, no, Zeus is not God, Zeus is an idol. What makes Zeus an idol? It's the claim that God is really, the preferred image of God is a man, the preferred image of God is white, the preferred image of God is Jewish. In other words, the second dignity of an image of God is that God is all in every image and they are all equal. And of course, if you think about it, if I'm infinitely valuable, how can you be worth more than me? How can you be more than equal? Which brings me to the third fundamental dignity of an image of God. The image of God is unique. In the words of the Talmud, humans can re replicate human images. You take stamps, you can multiply and copy them by the thousands, by the millions. If you have an upside down airplane stamp, <laughs> it's worth $4 million because it's so rare a misprint. <laughs> but in a standard sort of way, all dollar bills are all the same. All stamps are all the same. <coughs> but the power of God, says the Talmud, is that God makes all images of all humans from one mold, Adam and Eve. And yet each one is different. Each human being is unique. Even identical twins are not identical. So here is the fundamental dignities implicit in creation for every human being. When you see a human being in the image of God, you understand they're infinitely valuable. Which is, by the way, why, do you ever think about why tzedakah, why do we, we boast of this? According to Jewish tradition, you don't just help the poor as a favor. Tzedakah, it's righteousness. Why do I owe this poor person, this hungry person, food? The answer is because they're infinitely valuable, they're equal to you. And if you are better off, you should feel a moral obligation, an emotional obligation. Here is this infinitely valuable creature starving. Here is this equal person sick and no one is helping them. Here is this person being treated as unequal sexism, being treated as unequal racism, being treated as unequal anti-Semitism, then it's a violation of the fundamental dignity. It's a breach of the order of creation, it needs to be corrected. So if you understand the story of creation, we live in a world in which human beings, all forms of life should be treated with dignity, but human beings in particular should be treated with the highest form of dignity, infinitely valuable, equal and unique. That is the Jewish portrait of creation, and obviously by this standard the world is messed up, which brings me to the second great Jewish story. The second great Jewish story is this world's not going to stay this way. Never mind that it's entrenched. Never mind that it, most of human history has been dominated by inequality and dictatorship and oppression and suffering. It's a violation of the fundamental, and it will not stand. That's why the Jewish religion has had revolutionary impact on the world, because it taught this world, the status quo, is not going to last. Rather, it can and will be transformed. And how will it be transformed? The messianic vision. It will be made perfect. That's our vision. Tikkun olam is the world we made perfect. And what's my definition of perfect? The answer is a world that will be full of life, especially life in the image of God, but it will be treated with all the dignity and value which is inherently, it is its own by right. What kind of a world would you have to have if it truly respected the infinite value of human beings, the equality, the uniqueness? Well, you can figure it out yourself. 
It's a world in the messianic portrait of the prophets. We'd have to overcome poverty. When, when there is poverty, there's not enough money for food, not enough money for medicine, not enough money to take care of all the needs. We'd have to overcome hunger. We'd have to overcome oppression, no sexism, inequality, no racism, inequality, no discrimination, no stereotyping or denying of uniqueness. We'd have to create a world in which we'd overcome war. Remember, you heard that first here, right? What does Isaiah say about war? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their swords into pruning hooks, and they will learn one or more. So our religion taught the world not only that the world will be changed, not that the status quo will not stand, but that it must and will be perfected to the point of overcoming war, our dream, overcoming sickness. Talk about human uniqueness. What about Alzheimer, which robs people of memory? Their uniqueness, their experience. So we're going to have to learn to cure Alzheimer's, says the Jewish tradition. Well, you know, the ultimate Jewish dream, that's why I say this story ends up, I believe, the triumph of life. The ultimate Jewish dream is to overcome death itself. I quote Isaiah, death will be swallowed up in eternity. In fact, I'm understating the Jewish vision. I mean, I always say it sounds crazy, we're going to overcome death. But let me first push it before I admit it's a little crazy. How do we, overcome? we don't just want to overcome death. What's the ultimate Jewish claim? Not just that we will overcome death, we'll cure all the diseases, we'll figure out a cure for cancer, we will extend human life. You know what the ultimate dream is? Resurrection. The core of Jewish religion was the claim that someday the body, not just the soul, will be restored to life. The whole religion of Christianity could only grow out of Judaism because its core claim is resurrection too. When we say resurrection, again, whether you take it literally or not, the statement is very clear. We are going to overcome death. We're going to have a total triumph of life. That's our goal. Now, if we don't get to the whole triumph, how about extending life? How about curing a disease? How about raising the dignity? That's the Jewish claim, and that's why we've had this revolutionary impact on the world. And behind Western culture is the dream that we could overcome poverty and hunger, that we could defeat war, that we could, through science, cure disease and so on. Now I come to the last story, because that's the hardest story of all. But how do you move from creation and the world as it's meant to be to the world as we claim it will be when you live in a world where people are dying of hunger and of starvation and of oppression? So the Jewish answer here, as I say, it took me many years before I realized that's our really second, no less important contribution. The Jewish answer is it's not going to happen by a miracle God's going to bestow it. We are not a cargo cult. And it's not going to happen as Eastern religions and certain branches of Judaism in history have claimed. Not in this world, in the next world. And it's not going to happen as other Eastern religions have claimed and other branches of Judaism have claimed. By escaping this world as illusion, as Buddhism and Hinduism argue, to a nirvana of some perfect existence. The Jewish tradition says, in this world, flesh and blood, mortal world, we will make the world perfect. How? Our contribution, through a covenant, through a breed, through a partnership between God and humanity. It took me many years to realize the power of it because we lived in these last hundred years through attempts to realize the Jewish dream by all human effort. How about Marxism? How about communism? 
How about Maoism? The dream was to make the world perfect, and they would stop at nothing to make it perfect, turn out to be a disaster, led to worse suffering and mass killing. Why? Because it didn't understand the principle of covenant. What covenant said is the human must participate. It won't happen by itself. It will take a real partnership, not just a partnership of God and humanity, a partnership between the generations, because it's not going to happen in one generation. You can't get it done in one generation. If you try to get it done in one generation, that's what went wrong with Maoism and Stalinism. They didn't see it as a partnership. They saw it the other way. I'm in charge, Stalin, and I've got to make it happen. And anybody who gets in my way is against making the world perfect, so I will crush them. I will send them to concentration camps. I will not allow two parties, because why should I have one party? Mao Zedong. One party is in favor of women having their legs bound when they're babies, and twisted so they grow up with doll-like legs, so they look, the men can show them off like dolls. So how should we have two parties, one for it and one against? No, so we have one party. But the name of the one party to make a perfect world, you oppress people and you kill rich peasants and you send people to concentration camps and before you know it, you've made things worse. Drew says, a partnership, A, where humans feel accountable to God, I'm not in charge and I can't spend the world as if I own it. I can't abuse, even for productivity, even for industry, even for wealth, I have no right to abuse the world as if I own it. I'm not God. And on the other hand, this partnership is between humans, between those who are ruled and those who rule. It's a democratic partnership. And if I think I'm in charge and I can dictate it, I can force it down your throat, I'll make things worse, not better. So it's the partnership. And a partnership means respecting human beings. It means going as fast as humans can go and no faster. So the Jewish tradition teaches, change the world one step at a time. My favorite, my favorite Jewish Jewish story, because again, Christianity also talked in terms of a transformation of the world by common, but it's going to happen miraculously, apocalyptically, or actually major Jewish schools that taught the same way. But the mainstream of covenant said, one step at a time, you and my favorite story, it's a Napoleon story. When Napoleon, as emperor, won the Battle of Austerlitz, famous case, that's actually, we you know, on his way up, that was his greatest moment. He defeated an allied army, became emperor of Europe. The story goes, when the battle was over, Napoleon, exhilarated, calls in his generals, General, you as we've done today, you have won me an empire. I've defeated the allied armies, Europe lies before me. I want the soldiers to know their emperor appreciates their greatness, their heroism. Round up the army. Find me the three great heroes, the three best fighters of Austerlitz, and I shall personally reward them so that every soldier should know I appreciate this. Well, of course, tremendous excitement on it, the whole army, they go search. They come up with three sergeants, the three best fighters of Austerlitz. One is a German, one is a Pole, and one is a Jew. Well, they line up the whole army, the drums are playing, the band is playing, everybody's excited. Napoleon makes a speech of one empire, and now you shall be rewarded. Anything you ask your emperor shall have it. It's tremendous applause. And the German sergeant goes up for sire. Anything? Anything. He says, sire, Germany is prostrate. Germany is divided into 50 duchies that have been taken over. It's been broken. Sire, unite Germany. Tremendous applause. Napoleon says, you shall have it. They fire off all the cannons. Now it's the Pole's turn. Anything, anything. He says, sire, Poland has been swallowed up by Russia, Prussia, and Austria. 
Poland has been robbed of its freedom. Sire, restore Poland. Tremendous applause. Napoleon says, you shall have it. They fire off all the cannon. Now it's the Jews' turn. He gets up, they say, anything, anything. He says, sire, I ask for a schmaltz herring. Everybody's a little stunned. There's no applause. Napoleon looks at him and says, you shall have it. He's obviously a little annoyed. He walks away. They're walking back, the two sergeants say to Jew, Meshuggah, anything you want, you ask for a schmaltz herring. He says to them, I'll get a schmaltz herring. You'll see what you'll get. Our religion teaches you perfect the world one schmaltz herring at a time. That means when the Bible started, women were bought and sold, and one step at a time, women were given. I refer you to Blue Greenberg's book on women in Judaism. One step at a time, women were given the right not to be bought and sold, and then when they got married, they were given special rights to protect them in case of divorce or for equal dignity, and that didn't end there. And goes on and on, and we're still, as you know, we're still struggling in this day, and I mean, not just in the Orthodox tradition, although it has more problems than most, to understand what it truly means to say women's equality and the full dignity of women as image of God. But one step at a time, that's our tradition. When the Torah was given, slavery existed. The Torah says one step at a time, the first step of slavery is put a limit. Six years, and on Shabbat, they never work and from that step by step until we achieve freedom. Now this may sound kind of obvious until you think of what happened in America, where it didn't happen a step at a time, it happened overnight, Civil War, Emancipation Proclamation, and a legacy of Jim Crow that lasted another 150 years because people couldn't accept the transformation. So the Jewish answer is every generation educate, pushes as far as it can go, and then passes on to the next generation until someday the whole world is perfected. And we don't see this as just a Jewish issue. The Jewish people is a teacher. It teaches these values, even a world that thought this was a joke or ridiculous or out of the question. It is a role model. We'll create a community that can reconcile the fact that you can't live a perfect life, that will give me some sort of dynamic way, doing a little better, trying a little harder, a higher standard of tzedakah, but keep working till we get there. So we serve as teachers, as role models, and bluntly we work alongside the rest of the world to make it perfect. So it's 4,000 years since we started. Still hasn't happened. The power of the Jewish religion, it has never surrendered to status quo, nor have we given up our vision and our teaching. And I will finish with that. So the three stories from creation to redemption is a task for all of humanity, and all of humanity has option of covenant with God, all of humanity has the dignity of being partners in creation, but we see ourselves as a kind of a pace setter, as a kind of an avant-garde, as a kind of a stimulus and a challenge to the world. The world hasn't always appreciated that. Sometimes there's great anger, great jealousy, great misunderstanding of what we're saying when we speak of the Jews as playing a special role. But that has been an unfinished agenda of the Jewish people. The amazing thing is after 4,000 years, we've never lost hope, never lost faith, continue to teach this. And we've gone from ancient civilizations, through medieval, through modern, we're now entering postmodern. The task is unfinished. The Jewish people continues. In my lifetime and yours, the Jewish people lived through the greatest assault of death on our people in the Holocaust. 
And again, you'd think that that would break our teaching that life will win out, that that would break our story of the dignity of human life. Quite the contrary. Jewish people responded with the greatest outburst of life of its history in building Israel, in restoring the Jewish people's dignity throughout the world, in rebuilding American life here, American Jewish life here. That is only the most recent example of our insistence. As powerful as death is, we believe that life is stronger. It's our choice to choose life, and if we choose life, and every human being has that choice every day in every action, the next food I eat, that's what kosher is all about. Will I show reverence for life in choosing it? Will I kill the animal if I kill it at all? Humanely, that's what kosher is about. In fact, according to kosher, ideally, I should be a vegetarian because ideally you shouldn't kill life altogether. But if you're going to insist on having meat, then kill it swiftly, painlessly. I always joke about it. You can't have any blood as a sign you don't own this life. Or though I say that's the Jewish way. We don't, we don't uh, stop you eating meat. We just take all the pleasure out of it. So, but it's the same idea. The ritual acts are no less than the ethical acts are kind of a reminder that you have to show reverence for life. So the next piece of food you eat, will you show reverence for life? And it doesn't just apply to kosher. How about the next piece of food I eat? Will it be healthy? You know, I don't know about you, I have a weakness for Haagen-Dazs ice cream. <clears throat> anyway, so I love it. And I, we had this, Blue and I went to this bar mitzvah two weeks ago, it was a great bar mitzvah. We came down afterward, and there before us was this Viennese table. It was great. I ran in and lo before me was this incredible table with every imaginable Haagen-Dazs ice cream sundae. I went in and there it had double dipped sundae with whipped cream. And I took it and I saw it and I said, oh my God, <laughs> what have I just done to myself? I just shot my heart full of fat, cholesterol. I mean, I chose death. If I'd only gotten a grip on myself and kept walking one table further, there was this celery. <laughs> Never mind, I choose death. No, no. What I, the point I'm trying to make is that when I speak, the next word I say can be a word of life and hope or a word of degradation and humiliation of somebody. Every time I choose food, I can be choosing health. Every time I choose to be exercise rather than a couch potato, it's a choice of life. In short, what the Jewish religion unfinished mission is to teach the world to choose life. In every personal action, to choose love and marriage and children, not self-centeredness. In every act of eating and action in life, in every act of business, to choose life rather than death, as an individual, and as a collective, as a community, to set a standard of human dignity, human life, and working for a world of perfection. That, after 4,000 years, is still our message. It's an unfinished message, but I believe it's a message that is credible and possible as never before in human history. The choice is ours, and that's why the renewal of Jewish life is so important. That the renewal of Jewish life is a statement that Jewish people has not given up its responsibility to bring the Messianic. We don't have the self-delusion that the world is already so perfect that I can now give up my mission and just pass. 
So that task is the task to which we dedicate ourselves as we renew Jewish life. Thank you. So you presented us with a, a wonderfully um, idealized, <laughs> ideological depiction of Judaism, you know, halavai, would that we all lived up to uh, that image. Now, I know you weren't saying that we do live up to that image. You were saying that that's the image we should aspire to generation after generation until there's some cumulative effect. But what do we do with real-life situations? That is... Um, with Israel and the West Bank, Israelis and Palestinians, if we are a people who stands for the infinite value of each human life, and I, don't, and I only ask you this question because of the respect I have for you, because I expect an, you know, an honest and mature and difficult answer to the question. How in, because you've, and because you've written a lot about Jewish power, how do we affirm the infinite dignity of human life and realpolitik using Jewish power wisely, in a smart way, and as you've written, in a prophetic way as well? Then you have to go spoil my wonderful <laughs> idealized version by bringing reality to bear here. What's going on? Okay, thank you. Um, no, it's a very honest question. Again, I. What you really point to is the problem of method. And I, I hinted at that when I spoke about covenant. In other words, the problem is to get to this ideal world, what methods work? And in the real world, particularly, you can't overnight. I mean, again, the Jewish dream is to abolish war. The Jewish dream, uh, no question. And yet, what if Israel didn't have an army? We'd be dead now. We would have been dead not once. We'd have had three holocausts since 1945 in Israel if they didn't have an army. So I start with that reality. Again, in the ideal world, you know, it reminds me of in the ideal world, the lion will lie down with the lamb. I mean, that's our dream. And then in the real world, as Woody Allen once said, when the lion lies down with the lamb, the lamb doesn't sleep very well at night. <laughs> One's, one, one's, one is reminded of uh, or the, or the famous story of Golda Meir and Henry Kissinger when, when he uh, challenged her to sign that first agreement with Egypt and she didn't believe it and finally she says to him, look, I'll do this, this is this joke, when, when I, I'll do this when the lion lies down with the lamb I will sign this treaty because not going to happen. And of course the story goes so they put the lion and the lamb together in the Tel Aviv Zoo and to her amazement the first day she goes by, there's the lion lying there very quietly with the lamb. Second day, third day, fourth day, she says, I'll sign. She signs. She says, now tell me how you did it. He says, very simple. You put in a new lamb every day. <laughs> now, so in the real world, Jewish tradition says you have a right to an army. You have a right to an army. And then what is it to be mature morally? Mature morally means you have different kinds of wars. You have a defensive war, which is actually a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah to let evil win. It's a mitzvah to defend yourself. They're trying to kill you. Then you have what the religion calls milchemet reshut. It's not as clear as self-defense. Maybe it's an, it's an anticipatory or a preemptive war. It's judgment call. Some people would argue it never will happen. You shouldn't take a chance. 
Why should you hurt other people? Maybe they won't. So the answer is, this kind of a law, war is permitted, but it's restricted, and yes, the techniques are restricted, and, the, and people, you get draft exemptions for moral resistance, oh, fine. And then there are wars that are aggressive, unjustified, and evil. You have to condemn people. And even in a defensive war, the soldiers who kill, come back, they have to go through ritual purification, because there is the guilt of killing. Now, why I give that background, I come to Israel now. I believe not only the rebirth of Israel, but the establishment of Israel is an incredible statement of human dignity and hope for the world, not just for us. I would argue that Israel's ability to bring in people from the Arab countries by the million, hundreds of thousands, Syrian, Russian Jews, a tremendous statement of hope for the world, human dignity. Look at the Ethiopian Jews in a continent where people were dying, I die as I speak to you, who could be kept alive by a dollar's worth of food and no one is doing it. The Jewish people rescued tens of thousands of Ethiopian Jews, gave them new life, raised hundreds of millions of dollars. These are tremendous statements of hope. Now having said that, it's a real world. And this is the key to confidence. You're working with human beings. In the real world, the best of societies, American society and Israel, the human needs, there are human interests, there's cross purposes, there's abuse, there's unfair privileges. Now, in the case of Israel and the West Bank, it takes a little reminder. Now, first of all, again, Israel, before we get to the West Bank, Israel built a society, which I think, again, for the Middle East particularly, is a substantial Arab minority. It has more dignity, it has more education, it has more access than any Arab community in the Middle East. Having said that, it has not had full equal treatment. And so part of our challenge, the covenantal challenge, is step by step. I tell you, the Torah starts, women are bought and sold. So how do you make it better step by step? Takes time. And the truth is that Israel has a way to go with its own Arab minority population. And if it doesn't do it right, then there is real problems of poverty and of weaker education. And it's an unfinished agenda. But I believe, again, that covenantally, if we keep working at it, we'll get there. Now I come to West Bank. The West Bank started, as may you recall, with a war that was trying to wipe out the state of Israel. And having won, amazingly, it starts again going back to places. Here again, I, I, looking back now, I, it, it, there was an element of grandiosity and loss of judgment. There was also elements, I'll give you the place because I don't think Israel will give it back, and then one which I have supported, even though I have been against much of what's going on in the West Bank. Kfar Etzion. I had a madrich when I was in the young man in, in, in Zionist movement, who was one of the 35 Jews who was sent out. Kfar Etzion is one of a group of four settlements just outside of Jerusalem that was protecting the road to Jerusalem that was surrounded by the Arab Legion. They held out long enough to save Jerusalem, but they were overrun and destroyed. And then after they surrendered, they were massacred. And three months before it fell, they evacuated the women and children. The women and children who survived lived inside Israel, inside the Green Line. And after 67, they felt amazing. They had dreamt all these years, the place where their parents had sacrificed and built a life where they had been wiped out, that they would go back. And they went back, and they rebuilt Kvaratsyon. To me, it's an amazing statement of human dignity and of human hope and of the power of life over death. Now, so far, but then they didn't stop 
at Kvaratzion, they pushed further into the West Bank. Again, where'd they go? They went to Hebron, places which had classic Jewish associations. And people really felt like God, only in Jewish history, go back to the most ancient and wonderful places. Now here's where the tragedy comes in. Wrapped up in their own vision, stopping to ask themselves, what about the Palestinians living here? So the answer, honestly, was that Palestinian national movement didn't exist in 1967. It was just starting. They didn't see it, so they missed it. Humans have the capacity to be so in love with their own story that they don't hear the other person's story. And so they built settlements all over the West Bank. And some of those settlements, many of them, actually, I want to say the vast majority are not. The vast majority are in the three settlement blocks, Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, parts, which will not be given back. And if there's any sort of decent peace, which I believe, I hope, still will be, they will accept that, and Israel will give other territory in return for this. 80% of that population is in less than 20% of the territory. They will make a territory exchange, and if you want to live in peace, there's no problem. The others, in the meantime, and it is very sad, and part of the sadness is that the religion has been a blinding factor. Convinced that this is a messianic deliverance, or convinced that this is the ancient Jewish religious heartland, they have a right to be there, but you're putting them in the middle of an angry local population, which is saturated with jihadists and hatred, so you have to then put blocks and controls, and they become more angry, and this has turned into a very ugly situation. Then you have Baruch Goldstein kills people on Purim, and so on. So the result is, now again, I say it's, it's really very sad, and in a way it's quite wrong. If there was true peace, Jews could live on the West Bank like Arabs live in Israel, and they should live in peace and dignity. Because of the hatred, because Islam now has a cancer of jihad that is really threatening its own dignity, it's not going to happen. So I come back to our role. I believe after 60 years of continuous terror and attack, on balance, Israel has shown a level of morality and of self-control that is a light unto the nations, even though people don't want to admit it. That is not denied the fact, however, that in the real world, a light unto the nations is 5% better, 10% better. It's not 100% better. I once wrote, and I stand behind it, if Israel is 5% better than the rest of the world, that's what it means to be light in the nations. It means, I'll give you a simple example, the invasion in Gaza, trying to stop rocketing that's been going on now for years, thousands of rockets, not a lot of people die, but you can't live a life. You can't live a life. You have a right to live a life. So invading Gaza, I ask you, despite the tremendous damage, and it was deliberately inflicted, some of it, no question, the physical damage, compare what happened in the Swat Valley in Pakistan. Under pressure from America to stop the terror, the Pakistani army invaded. In one month, there's like three million refugees from the Swat Valley. No, and tens of thousands of people were killed in the fighting. So again, I'm not saying that justifies, therefore, if Israel killed a single person. But it is a bitter reality that it's impossible to guarantee no civilian casualties. So again, my argument is that there have been abuses. I have no doubt there are abuses. The difference between morality and immorality in a perfect world is 5%, 10%. I once wrote, if Israel is 5% better, it will be light unto nations. If it's 25% better, it will bring the Messiah. If it's 50% better, it will be dead. It's a real world. And it's not a nice neighborhood that we live in right now in the Middle East. 
So I feel a tragedy, and particularly compounded by the fact that the religious values have hardened the settlers and have made particular settlers who are not going to be able to be held when the Palestinians didn't to oppose a Palestinian state. Well, the only logic there then is, if you insist on imposing it there, you have to drive out the Palestinians because there'll be a Palestinian majority otherwise in the whole country. So they're led down the road with good intentions to some of the most evil. And again, the Bible warns that. When you live with humans, they can end up in very dangerous and destructive situations. So what's our role? Our role is to back Israel, to, make, uh, to keep some proportion into what is going on and to who is the aggressor. Having said that, I have a moral responsibility to be critical when it makes mistakes, to warn it against this policy that is leading or could lead down the path of having to oppress another people, which will, in the long run, erode the moral fiber of our people. So it's a, it's a very honest question. Personally, I feel that the liberal rabbinate has wrestled with this question and has tended to slide into excessive or one-sided criticism. I feel the Orthodox rabbinate has had the other temptation and has fallen into it very happily which is to say to justify everything and to encourage the worst behavior of the settlers. So we have a lot to learn from each other. That's why I'm a pluralist. We have to have a serious conversation with each other. And, uh, thank you for that thoughtful answer. Let's talk about the Shoah and the proper use or the improper misuse of the Shoah. Um, you know, in a, in, some, in, a, in a line that is difficult to kind of repeat, but I think... Um, expresses a lot of exasperation with the misuse of the Holocaust. A, a well-known rabbi said, there's no business like Shoah business, you know? And, and when you see so many, uh, when you see so many people around the world misappropriating the Shoah for their own benefit, but you also see, also see Jewish defense agencies um, uh, also, and as well as Jews for a variety of political reasons, everything becomes Shoah-like. So you've written a lot and thought a lot and spoken a lot about the Shoah. What do you think the proper use or utilization of the Shoah in Jewish thinking, theology, and politics should be? You're asking me tremendous questions, and I'll try to make this a shorter answer because you, know, you can spend a lifetime wrestling with this question. Again, I start where I personally start is that this was the most devastating assault of death on life. I really do believe it was a systematic, not just murder of Jews, an attempt to wipe out this vision of life that I spoke about all, all evening. And you talk about infinite value of human life. You know, the Nazis, it wasn't just a killing. They had a department of the SS that was in charge of bringing down the cost of killing Jews. And in fact, the shift from mass shootings which we now know is a Catholic priest going around the world. I'm sure you may have heard him in Orange County, Patrick Dubois, who has uncovered many of these mass graves, mass shootings, which were neglected for all these years. They were using bullets and shooting Jews. They killed probably a million and a half of those six million or a million and a quarter of Jews by this mass shooting. And bluntly concluded that bullets are expensive. Bullets are expensive. So it was cheaper and more efficient. They also felt that some of the soldiers were upset when they shot people. They could see what they were doing. So you put them in a gas chamber, gas is cheaper, and gas, you don't see them. 
So there was a conscious choice. Now again, I talk about the infinite value of human beings, and here is a department to bring it down cheap. In the summer of 1944, this is a statistic I apologize for inflicting upon you, but it's haunted my life since I first discovered it. You have to understand the clash of death and life. Jewish tradition has a tremendous struggle between death and life. The Nazis used gas because that was cheaper. And then in the summer of 44, they were using so much gas, they were killing so many people, that somebody figured out they should make that cheaper. How do you make it cheaper? The answer is you cut the gas supply in half. So whereas it had taken 11 kilograms of a full chamber load to kill 1,500 people, roughly, by cutting the gas supply in half, you could kill the same 1,500 people. It just took a half hour instead of 15 minutes for them to die. And you could save half the money. And when I came across this statistic and I couldn't believe it, I sort of did the, mar the arithmetic. It turned out by cutting the gas supply in half, they brought the cost of killing a Jewish person or child to less than half a penny per person. So rather than spend a penny to kill a Jew, you spend a half a penny. Now, I'm not finished the story. In the summer of 44, at the peak of the killing, someone figured out you can save even more money. And this is the scene in Ali Wiesel's Night, if you've read that book. You take the Jewish children and you dump them directly into the burning pits. You don't kill them first. You save that half a penny. So in the summer of 1944, someone decided to save Nazis a half a penny a child by dumping them into the burning pits they burn alive instead of killing them first. So we're talking infinite value of human life, and they're talking save a half a penny by burning them to death. So there's a measure of a Holocaust has to be taken very seriously. It's a struggle of life and death, and it's not just because the Jewish people this was done to. The pathologies of, that made the modern, that made Holocaust possible are the pathologies of modern culture. It's technology out of control. It's bureaucracy out of control. It's the power of total control, which only modern life makes possible. So the whole world, not just has to study this and learn the lesson, otherwise it'll repeat, and not just against Jews. So I start with that, and that is our responsibility, and that's why I think the Jewish people did wake up. It took time and decided we'll share the story. It will teach the story. Yes, we built a Holocaust Museum in Washington, which, of course, haters hate, and that's why you had that incident of two weeks ago. Having said that, this is a human activity. And here again, this is the hard part of covenant. Covenants with human beings, it must be very hard for God to make a part of human being. You know what? It's a mistake. Don't get involved with humans. I understand, look back now, the Bible tells the story of the flood. You know, God wanted a perfect world, humans messed it up. Wipe out the whole world, start over again. That's, I understand that logic. The most amazing thing is the Bible's teaching. In the end, God realized that's wrong. You want to work with human beings? If you want to make them perfect, you'll have to kill them all. If you want to make them perfect, the only alternative way to make them perfect is not to kill them all is to accept them in all their flaws and all their selfishness and all their self-centeredness and work with them, make them better, a little at a time. Try to show them a better example. Try to show them a human community. That's what Judaism is trying to be. Now come back to the Holocaust. Human beings can take a Holocaust and inspire them to greatness, to human compassion. If they understand the Holocaust properly, the way they try to cheapen human life, then every Jew would be not only sensitized to protecting Israel or saving Russian Jewry, then 
we who live through what it means to have human life worth less than half a penny per person, we should be the leaders in making sure that there's enough malaria, anti-malarial netting, so that children in Africa don't die for lack of half a penny's worth of, of netting every night. So the Jewish people, if we understand Holocaust properly, would apply the Holocaust properly to responsibility for all human beings, not just for Jewish people. I remember Mayor Kahana was a classmate, believe it or not. I remember our arguments. Mayor Kahana inspired a young man to go out and protest Soviet Jewry by placing a bomb in Saul Hurok's office. It went off and it killed an innocent secretary. And he, said, he had this message, never again. I said to him, never again. You know what you've just done? You've killed an innocent secretary. That's what I did in the Holocaust. In the name of never again, you're continuing the Holocaust. So if we don't watch it, the Jews can take Holocaust and abuse and justify all kinds of crimes. There are Jews in Israel who said, you know, they're all out to get us. They're all Amalek. They're all trying to make another Holocaust. If we have a right to kill them, a right to kill innocent Arabs. That is an example of how you can take life and turn it into death. The Talmud says the line between heaven and hell is as thin as a hair's breadth. So we have a tremendous responsibility, and there's other forms of Holocaust abuse. There's commercialization and cheapening. There's using Holocaust to silence every criticism. That's all wrong. And of course, there's the abuse we're now seeing in the Palestinian narrative, where you take Holocaust and you apply it to Israel in a false and vicious way. So, but humans do that. So I have no cure except that the people who understand have to exercise judgment. They have to teach it properly. They have to, Israel trains its defense forces. They take them to Yad Vashem. And they say two lessons. Number one, this is what they did when Jews didn't have an army and didn't have power to defend themselves. Number two, this is what it felt like to be an oppressed people when an army invades and shows disrespect and degradation of the civilians. That's what you have to avoid doing when you fight, when you go in. And that's the challenge of applying Holocaust properly with limits, with self-criticism. And on the other hand, not being afraid to talk about it. Now, if you don't do it right, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the Obama speech. In a way, we have to ask ourselves how much of that is our fault. That on the one hand, he understood that Israel is in part a response to the Holocaust, but we have talked so much about Holocaust that he didn't understand that the real basis is the triumph of life. The real basis and purpose of Judaism in Israel was to go back to a place where we had thousands of year old roots, where we wanted to build life, where we wanted to show a model of human freedom and dignity living on your own land, so that throughout the world, everybody's entitled to the dignity of living in freedom on their own land. So you absolutely asked the right question. There is no right answer. There is the day-to-day -day struggle to apply the lesson properly. Self-criticism always is the first step. And at the same time, universally applying it to all life while applying it to protect Jews and Jewish life. And that is the challenge of living with this and fighting the abusers. Now, let's shift to um, religion now. Um, one thing that I greatly ad admire you for is the remark I mentioned when we were talking before your presentation, that years ago you said, I'm not going to take an aliyah in a, a Torah honor in a Orthodox service because women aren't counted to the minion and are not allowed to come up to the bimah and have that aliyah. 
Um, and that's what I meant before in my remarks about standing within orthodoxy and loving it and also disagreeing with it and challenging it to grow. So my question is, and, I'm, and this will be like a, a, a sort of across the board question so you can critique every movement. Um, what do you think the major problems, spiritual challenges, deficiencies of each of the movements, Orthodox, Conservative, Reconstructionist, and Reform are? <laughs> well, because, yeah, that, you'll invite me back for another lecture. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll change one of the topics. I love it. The great questions, by the way, all of them are great questions. Well, again, I won't give you the whole, the whole menu, although it certainly deserves serious... Uh, let me start from the beginning again. I think, I do say self-criticism goes first. Orthodoxy has some great qualities, great qualities. The whole tradition, affirms the whole tradition, has made tremendous emphasis for learning, high degree of commitment and observance, strong community. I mean, it has enriched my life, our, our lives, our children's lives. I'm tremendously grateful, and I'm nurtured by it, and I'm, I dive in an Orthodox synagogue. That having been said, it has some serious weaknesses, very serious weaknesses. Among them, in trying to resist modernity, it ended up sort of saying no to everything. Well, you can't say no to everything. Just say no doesn't work for Nancy Reagan, it didn't work for us. And at the beginning, maybe just say no, I'm willing to defend that. When everybody is assimilating, just say no. But we're 150 years past that now. And I'm a pluralist in part because of this very fact that Orthodoxy strengths also turned to forms of weaknesses. For example, saying no to modernity meant they couldn't deal with the scholarship. Serious questions of scholarship, claims about the Torah authority of the rabbis, which are historically very questionable. Instead of coming to grips with that, they sort of denied it, and it's heretical to raise the issue. So they paint themselves into a corner. They still can't deal with history. So halakha has changed over history, but instead of admitting that, in fact, instead of affirming and celebrating that, because what, do you want to go back to the original halakha that women should be bought and sold? The Torah starts the process of ending that by saying a man can only sell his, cannot sell his daughter for slavery anymore. He can only sell her for someone who wants to marry her. And when he marries her, this is Exodus chapter 21, I'll make this up, you can read it yourself. When he marries her, he must give her the rights of a free woman. He can't treat her as someone he bought. Great, that's a great first step. Do you want to go back and practice that literally? So instead of saying just the opposite, this is a partnership between God and humanity, and the Torah is meant to be, it starts there, but we move forward, and that's the whole point of Blue's book. Because in the Torah, in the, in the Talmud, excuse me, comes along and says, despite the improvements, women need more protection. So they develop a ketubah for women. So despite that fact, Along comes Rabbi Gershom a thousand years later and said, you know what, even though the ketubah means when they get divorced, he has to give her a financial settlement, that's great. But how about right now, he can give it to her whether she likes it or not. Rabbi Gershom says, I don't care if he's going to give her financial satisfaction. He can only give it to her if she's willing to accept it. So he didn't stop and say this is the end. He made the next step toward dignity. And Blue's point is, the next step after that would be that the woman should have the right, like the men, to instruct the, the giving of a get, which would end the problem of Aguna, women who are stuck for life by some rascal who will not give them the get. He's got that power. Blackmail, he's not giving it to her. 
So instead of following through orthodoxy, self-image, we don't allow change because that's reform or that's conservative. So in the name of protecting the Torah's authority, scoundrels are able to blackmail and extort and waste the lives of women. So that's the punishment. When you misapply a tradition, you end up doing evil in the name of good. In the name of the Torah's dignity, you desecrate and ruin the Torah. Now it comes back to women's question in general. So again, women have wonderful roles in Jewish tradition, but they don't have equal roles, and they certainly don't have access to leadership roles in things like rabbinic and so on. So why not? And here the reform and the conservative pioneered in Reconstruction, pioneered, or more power to them. That's from a pluralist. So stop and learn from the other side. Stop and see where they're right as well as where they're wrong. So orthodoxy has a lot to learn. Unfortunately, it has gotten stronger in the last 20 years, mainly by becoming stronger and turning inward rather than listening to the other side. There's been much more antagonism, much more defamation of the other side. It's very tragic. And yes, I'm not happy. On the other hand, I'm not going to walk away. Why not? Well, for one, because it's given me so much good, I don't want to abandon it to the people who I think are making a mistake, which doesn't make me necessarily popular or influential in the, in the community. And again, I mean, you know, people always say, why well, you want to make a change? What's your motive? I always tell people, motives. I have no motives. I'm, I love this tradition. I love the Orthodox community. It's been great for me. And besides, I have every privilege. I, I lack for nothing, you know. I am a white, male, Kohen rabbi. <laughs> So every privilege in the system is given to me, right? It's tough at funerals, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's a privilege, too, sometimes to be exempt. You know, but, but to come back to the point, so I, say, I have no quarrel, but on the other hand, it's why should I live comfortably in these privileges when my wife sits in the back of the room? So again, I'd like to see Orthodox Jews forget about equal rights. How about starting by giving equal sight lines, equal hearing lines, equal sitting lines? So again, if they weren't so busy showing how superior they were to the reform, they would do that. So that's the orthodox experience. Now, how about the others? Again, each one has strengths. Those strengths can be weaknesses. The strength of reform was recognition of change, the moral strength of Gentiles being fully human, understanding that and having to rewrite the tradition accordingly to understand the power of history. Those are each of those things, universal responsibility for all people, tremendous insights. What's the weakness of that? The weakness of that is you're so rational, you begin to close off a lot of the emotional and, and other powerful traditions of the community. You become so rational, you become so modern that you don't understand that women might be different, not just equal. You become so modern that you want to be like the others and you're afraid to stand for a state. Of course, some of these things are corrected now. Zionism, I don't need that. America's perfect. What do we need another country for? So reform made a lot of mistakes out of the very insight and greatness. So again, my answer is reform has an important contribution to make. They should learn from them. Reform has important corrections to make, which, of course, they are making a serious effort now to do in many. And Zionism is one example. Well, they made a correction. But these are all... I apply to each group. Reconstructionism, which again is a magnificent contribution, and Kaplan's insights have made very important the idea of community, the idea it comes from the people, not from above, the power of custom and of uh, community ways. Those are all important insights. The critique of supernaturalism where it's primitive and not thought through, those are important contributions. The weakness? 
well, the weakness is excessive rationalism, a loss of a sense of authority, etc., which again, the more sensitive Reconstructionist rabbis, Art Green, understood that it needs to be renewed with a new access to mysticism and to spiritual experience. Great. So it has my point. Again, the secret, I think, is to be a pluralist. The secret is to learn from each other. Each community has real strengths and real weaknesses. And if we can learn from each other and avoid the stereotyping, what happens is you, you cover your own faults by stereotyping. Well, we're perfect. The Orthodox are a bunch of male chauvinists, and that solves my problem. If they deal with any of their challenges about learning more or about their challenges of the power of authority and vice versa. So I think that's why I'm a pluralist. I, in fact, I'll finish with this story. I double that pluralism issue because of my strong conviction that the great transforming events of my lifetime, the Holocaust in Israel, none of the groups was just right on these issues. No one understood what was happening. No one prevented it in advance. No one responded afterward with great profoundness. It took time. So my answer is, I, so this was the last time I was invited to speak for my Orthodox colleague, Rabbinicus Council. I gave a talk about the Holocaust, which was very clear that none of the groups, because many Orthodox try to use that triumphalism too, you know, piety, religious devotion, the Holocaust, it's great, but it ignores the whole question of the Orthodox rabbis who opposed going to Israel, the Orthodox rabbis who fooled their people into, who misled their people into staying because they didn't, or instead depend upon miracles, the Orthodox rabbis who opposed the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising because they said God will make miracles, he can't fight. I mean, instead of using it triumphalistically, they should be used it for self-criticism, no. Anyway, so I gave this speech pointing out that each of the groups had failed in many ways and there was no basis for any claim. Well, they were kind of angry, particularly since the mood was we're right and conservative reform are wrong, we're wrong. So finally somebody got up in the back and said, look, I have listened to you very carefully. You're an Orthodox rabbi. The plain blunt implication of your speech was that they're all, you know, playing in all your houses. None of them had it right. He said, so I'm asking you, Rabbi, what should you be after the Hong Kong? Should you be Orthodox, conservative reform? So I thought for a minute and I said, you know what? After the Holocaust, it's not so important if you're Orthodox, conservative, reform, or reconstructionist, as long as you're ashamed of it. <laughs> now, you know what I mean by, as long as you know what I mean by ashamed of it, it really means you understand your own failures, your own limitations. Actually, I'm proud to be ashamed of being Orthodox. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but you know what I mean. In other words, you know your limitations. Well, of course, he was furious. He yells back, so why are you Orthodox? <laughs> I said, because that's the group I'm most ashamed of. <laughs> well, of course, they never invited me back. But, but when, I, when I thought about it, I'm absolutely correct. Am I ashamed when Buddhists don't give women equal rights? Yeah, I am. Am I feel bad when, you know, when, when Christian, when Catholics won't let women have priesthood? Yeah. But I don't feel as deeply ashamed as with my own Orthodox tradition because that's the one that I live and practice, so I feel particularly bad. So the answer is, if you're a good Reconstructionist, that's the movement you're most ashamed of because it has wonderful qualities, but it also has weaknesses, and you'd like to correct those weaknesses. But again, I don't mean total shame. As I said, you have to be proud to be ashamed of such a wonderful movement. Thank you. I want to thank Rabbi Greenberg for being with us. Uh, please stay around, come into the social hall and uh, schmooze and eat a little bit and, and talk with Rabbi Greenberg. And, uh, and please keep coming to CSP events. So uh, good evening and happy Father's Day.